Good morning. Are you having a good time? It's really, really good and uh, great to see the trend lines in this movement. Uh, we like arrows. I don't know. You may not be a business person or a stats person. When arrows are going up, it's good. Down, not good. So, so having arrows that are pointed up is a good thing. And that's why the graphic on uh, the wall while we're worshiping, it's a good thing. They're moving up uh, as we worship. So anyway, um, well, I, we are going to um, continue to look at Scripture this morning. And if you would, take a look at, you call it, to Timothy. I don't know why you do that. It's 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 8. So turn on your phone and let's read along. 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 8. Here's what we read. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around themselves a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn, aside, turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I'm already pour, being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And uh, these words, certainly the first five verses, have been used uh, at seminary graduations uh, and often in ordination services when we commission new pastors. And these words contain much of the job description of a Christian leader. And so I'm not going to be able to go through every particular here because this passage is so rich. But uh, let's just talk about a vision for Christian leadership. What do we mean when we speak of Christian leadership? What are the fundamentals that we would be considering as we think about Christian leadership. And verse 1 gives us the fundamental mindset that every Christian leader must have. Paul says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. A visionary leader lives with a constant sense of future judgments. A constant sense of future judgment. A leader uh, 
is worth following always has a uh, sense, it's in the background of their mind, that they will, along with the rest of the world, have to give account before the Lord. Leaders, in particular, are reminded of their own future judgment in almost every New Testament book. Run it through for yourself. You're a pastor. You might be, want to be aware you're going to have to give an account. You're going to be judged. Uh, James says this in James 3, verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12, verse 42. The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the ma master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. And then, then in verse 48, But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has, more will be given, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Jesus goes on and says, from, from everyone who has been given much, much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. The reality that God will judge our lives and judge our ministries was, was constantly in uh, the uh, uh, fabric of Paul's ministry. It was in the foreground of his mind. He wrote this in Romans 14. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat your brother or sister with contempt? We will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. It's the reality of judgment that gave Paul urgency in his preaching. He knows he's going to be judged, and he knows the people he's speaking to are going to be judged. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive what is due them for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade people for what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. What should you look for in a Christian leader? We should look for someone who does fear the Lord. Who takes God seriously. And because they fear the Lord, they're careful about boundaries. Uh, they know they're going to have to give an account. They're... Folks who are constantly thinking about bringing increase. God has invested in our lives talents. He's given us opportunities. Uh, he's given us favorable circumstances. And he will require from our hands increase concerning what he has given us. We want to find someone who has a sense of urgency about them. There's an internal motor going. A Christian leader is not somebody who has to be motivated by someone else to find their own starter button. 
You know, for me, if, if uh, one of the, my hiring requirements when I'm hiring new staff is, can they find their own starter button in the morning and are they self-motivated? Or do they require me to constantly get them going? A Christian leader doesn't require anyone else to get them going. They live with an idea that we don't have all the time in the world, that men and women are racing to judgment. We don't know how long any of our lives are going to last. We need to decide now what we're going to do with what the Lord has given us. And uh, this consciousness of future judgment absolutely must be intentionally stirred up in a postmodern 21st century environment where judgment has been completely eliminated from any of our radar screens. There is no societal uh, input, no signal from the larger society that you and I will ever have to give an account for anything. And so talk about living in a countercultural way, in a way that is absolutely at odds with the larger cultural narrative of life in 21st century Western societies. If we went back to pre-modern society, back before the 18th century, people lived with a constant apprehension of judgment. That all that we do and all that we are is in full view of the Lord. And we'll give account for our words. And we'll give account for our secret activity. It's not just what we do in public. It's also what we do when we are alone. What we are like when we are alone. When the shades are shut. When the door is shut. What are you like then? And uh, this needs to be stirred up. We have to be intentional. Sit before God. As a spiritual discipline, sit before God and take five minutes simply contemplating this reality. You, O oh Lord, are my judge. Imagine standing before God, your judge. It's an unsettling thought, isn't it? And so with judgment as a background, Paul gives... This charge to Timothy, he says, preach the word. Preach the word. When you're looking at a Christian leader, you're certainly talking about someone who preaches the word. Uh, someone who lives under the authority of Scripture. Now, listen, you know, we vineyard people, uh, many of us have gotten good educations. Uh, there are many of us who, who want to be lifelong learners. We're in touch with current theological uh, trends. We understand that uh, the Bible cannot be read flatly. We are not in the vineyard fundamentalists. We take account of the uh, very different culture that Scripture was written in. We, we understand that the first century Greco-Roman world is, is very different than the 21st century West. We uh, take account of the grammar of the text. We take account of the form of the text. We take account of what some have called the hermeneutical spiral. We, we look at our, we hear from Scripture, we 
consider our own culture and the questions it's asking, come back to Scripture, come back to our culture. We do those kinds of things in the vineyard. But we also believe that God intends to speak to us in Scripture. That what Scripture says, God says. And once we've arrived at what we believe to be the meaning of the text, then we as evangelicals, empowered evangelicals, uh, say it's incumbent upon us to obey the text. Jesus said, He who loves me keeps my commands. And the Father will send His Spirit to come alongside of us as our advocate, as our comforter. But to love the Lord means that you live under the authority of Scripture. Uh, I have encountered recently vineyard pastors who have been so taken by the postmodern critique of authority and of Scripture that there really is no meaning in the text at all. And uh, I, I struggle to even know how to communicate. Uh, you know, uh, at some point, having determined that, yes, this is what Scripture is saying, then we say, I yield. I yield. I might not like it. It may count, you know, cut cross grain against the grain of my culture. It may mean that I am unpopular. It may mean that I am classified with folks that I don't want to be classified with and that uh, make my skin crawl. Nevertheless, if Scripture requires this of me, God is asking this of me. And so, what is it that we're doing when we preach? You know, one of the things we're doing is we have this enormous privilege, this honor. Preaching is the most exciting thing that anyone could ever be called to. Those of you who are senior pastors, those of you who are teaching pastors, do you step back sometimes and say, I cannot believe that I have the honor of opening the Word of God? Or do you ever find yourself just absolutely struck by, you know, your own inadequacy and the great privilege you have to communicate to someone else what God is saying? It's the primary way that the kingdom of God goes forward. John Wycliffe, who was the first person to translate the Latin Vulgate into English back in the uh, 14th century, he said this, The highest service that any person can attain to on earth is to preach the Word of God. For this cause, Jesus Christ left all other works and occupied Himself in preaching, and so did His apostles. And for this, God loved them. The Reformation was all about the restoration of preaching, to the central place in the life of the church, replacing what was seen with what was heard, replacing an enacted drama of the uh, mass with preaching that went out to the masses. Cotton Mather was the 17th century Puritan in America, and he said, the great design and intention for Christian teachers is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men, to display in living color and to proclaim in the clearest language the wonderful perfections, offices, and grace of the Son of God, 
and to attract the souls of men into a state of everlasting friendship with Christ. It is a work which an angel might wish for as an honor to his character, an office which every angel in heaven might covet to be employed in for thousands of years to come. And so I think the best thing that could ever happen to a young leader is to sit in a church under strong preaching. If you want to see uh, leaders who, who uh, grow well, who are uh, developed in their thinking, who are wise, find strong preaching. Put leaders, young leaders, under strong preaching. Uh, confidence in the gospel, confidence in the word of God is more caught than taught. And wouldn't it be wonderful if, if every one of the senior pastors in the Vineyard Movement and every one of the teaching pastors uh, was excited about preaching? Uh, wouldn't it be great if we Vineyard pastors raised the standard of our preaching, that we regularly challenged each other to do better, if we had regular courses on preaching and in Proving our preaching and thinking about ways to lift up uh, the standard of our preaching. So many of us as pastors don't know how powerful the pulpit is in shaping our churches. You know, we want to be visionary leaders. You have no better place to cast vision than the pulpit. Uh, you have no bigger bat, pastor, than the pulpit. I mean, do you use that phrase? Big bat, do you understand it? Yeah? Maybe cricket, you have a bat? <laughs> you never know what translates. You know, there is a problem of cross-cultural communication. Uh, I mean, you know, we, Americans have gotten themselves into terrible trouble here. I, years ago, I saw John Wimber. He, he was up on stage and... He uh, was wearing white pants, and he was uh, struggling at, at the end of his life to walk well, and he had stumbled in the street, and so he was wearing these white, what you call trousers, and he looked down, and he said, oh my, I have messed my pants. And then he said, no, 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 I didn't mess my pants. I, I got dirt on my trousers. But it absolutely works, you know, in the other direction. It's not like you're free from this problem. And so uh, Bishop David Pitches, Debbie Wright's dad, he was sitting in the green room uh, with John Wimber one time and John, as always, had a mouthful of Diet Coke. And uh, Bishop David Pitches leaned back and put his hands behind his head, and he said, John, I would like to come to Anaheim and expose myself to your people. <laughs> and John just spit his Coke out. So John said, all right, you know. <laughs> so David came to Anaheim and no joke, in the introduction, John said, this is Anglican Bishop David Pitches. 
and he's come here to expose himself to you. But you really have no bigger bat in leading your church than the pulpit. And let me tell you what I do in Columbus in laying out a preaching schedule. Uh, I put a, a schedule together a year in advance of uh, the title of the sermon, the particular text I'm going to use, and lay it out on a calendar a year in advance. And, uh, of course, I'm open to the Spirit. And over the last four or five years, you know, about 20% of the sermons get switched out over the course of the year. Uh, but, uh, and by the way, you know, some of you are saying, that is ridiculous, you know. I, I could never do something like that. It is actually to lay out a calendar, a preaching calendar, a year in advance is not nearly so daunting as you might think if you as senior pastor, you've got a, a preaching team or it's you and you have a couple of other leaders, whether lay or staff. If you were to take a three-day three retreat, two-day retreat, got away and said, let's pray together, let's talk together about the upcoming calendar year and what our church needs. And often I will solicit from other staff what they think the church needs. I've even put out a survey to the church. What do you feel like you need? What kind of ideas would you have? In our church, they haven't come up with very good ideas, so I discarded them all. But, <laughs> but I did solicit them. I did ask. Nobody could charge me with not listening. But I also have discernment. In any case... I survey folks ahead of time, get a whole mess of ideas, tuck away for a couple of days. You sit down, you look at the calendar, look at the course of the year, and say, okay, you know, let's lay these things out in a long calendar. Why is that really a good thing to do? Well, well, one of the things that it does, of course, is you know what's coming, and there are some ideas along the way that you can put in files, and say, my goodness, you know, this will really, when I get to this series, you can read ahead. But even better, you can plan out your training center and your equipping events to coordinate with your preaching. See, the pulpit is great in motivating people to get equipped. So if you're doing a, a message on finances, then you can, in the course of the message, say, now... Uh, some of you have, have seen that, you know, you really need help with your finances. This Wednesday evening, we're doing a class at our training center on managing your finances, getting uh, a budget in order. And it absolutely has, over the last four or five years, increased the attendance at our training and equipping events uh, just multiplied uh, times over. I mean, it just has, uh, has so increased attendance and participation. The pulpit is great at motivating people. It's great at telling people the what. It's great at telling people the why. The pulpit is not the place that we can effectively teach people the how. The how is what we do in equipping and training. And so we need follow-up training centers. If we're going to grow a big movement, 
We've got to have a very large infrastructure. John Wimber taught us the size of the body is determined by the size of the skeleton. We must multiply leaders in our church if we want a growing church. You won't be able to do that if you don't have some kind of training center. And so we lay it out. And uh, people ask, what should I preach on? You know, I think about being a steward who is giving the family a healthy, balanced diet. Over the course of two years, I want to be able to look at the course of my preaching and say, has this been a really balanced diet? Have they heard from the Old and New Testament? Have they heard from the Gospels and the Epistles? Are they hearing vertical messages that aim us to God, uh, where we think about the attributes of God, the worship of God? Are they hearing horizontal messages about our responsibility towards the world? Are they hearing uh, sufficient messages about the various practical areas of life? Uh, Are there doctrines that I've neglected? Am I riding any hobby horses? You know, uh, a balanced diet. And so uh, it is not, by the way, like we have to guess at what we're going to preach on because we have an apostolic deposit and if we want apostolic churches, we need to preach what the apostles preached and we need to do what the apostles did. There is no church, there is no Christianity, there is no discipleship without forming people in the apostolic Scripture once for all delivered to the saints. It is the primary means, the Bible is the primary means that God uses to grow people. And when our pastors have confidence in the Word and we preach it with authority, people will grow. One of the reasons why vineyard worship has on occasion been vacuous One of the reasons why on on occasion vineyard worship has has been thin or bereft of content is because I think some worship pastors and worship leaders are not sitting under strong preaching. If we want great worship songs to emerge, we need more than just, you know, songwriters gatherings which are helpful or, you know, growing skills in playing our instrument, we have to uh, think great thoughts and we have to sit under great preaching and preaching will stir up great worship. And so we have authority. And listen, I am absolutely not advocating a certain form of preaching. I'm not in any way suggesting that to preach well you need a classical three-point sermon uh, you know, I'm all for, for relevant preaching. I mean, as the early 20th century preacher Henry, uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick said, uh, shocking as it may be, people do not come to church asking, whatever became of the Jebusites anyway? <laughs> I'm all for relevant preaching. I'm all for answering questions that people are asking. Uh, We can take, you know, dozens of legitimate forms in preaching, but what I am advocating is lifting up preaching in the mind of our senior leaders. 
to put it in the first place, to say that I've got no more important job than laboring and sweating and wrestling so that I could communicate better, to lift up my own standard of preaching, to pray over it, to take enough time to to actually work this out. And if you're not good, steal someone else's message. Really. I mean, I really like Rick Warren's statement, if my bullet fits your gun, which translates well culturally, then use it. But we dare not move away from preaching and proclamation as being central in our vineyard churches. And uh, with all the shifting winds of culture and all the the movements and uh, the changing vision of what it means to be human, uh, the changing vision of what it means to be a family, the changing vision of of what it means to to, uh, be a flourishing society, we are going to need to continually come back to Scripture. And uh, every movement that has lost its way has moved away from Scripture. As Isaiah says, cry out, what is it that I should cry out? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So, the kingdom is extended through proclamation, and then the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. A visionary leader is faithful in the worst of times. A visionary leader is faithful in the worst of times, back in the mid-1600s when the Puritan Oliver Cromwell became Lord Protector of England and Wales and Scotland and Ireland. Uh, But before he became Lord Protector, he uh, participated in supporting the execution of your king, right? And King Charles I was executed, put an end to the English civil wars for a period of time, and Cromwell's Commonwealth attempted to remove every sign of King Charles's reign. And one of the uh, things that the Puritans did was, uh, because the Anglican Church was so allied with uh, the life of the king and the king's reign, the Puritans went through England uh, harassing and, and uh, destroying Anglican monasteries, went into Anglican churches and smashed their baptismal fonts. Uh, it was a particularly difficult period of time in the mid-1600s if you were an Anglican pastor. Uh, some Anglican pastors were thrown out of their homes. Uh, some had their parsonages burned. Many Anglican pastors were bullied. Uh, They were harassed. Uh, Some were beaten up. Some were even imprisoned. And in the midst of this, there's a little inscription hidden away in Staunton Harold Church in Leicestershire. And, And let me read to you from this church inscription. I love this. It said, in the years of 1653, 
when all things sacred throughout the nation were either demolished or profaned, this church was built to the glory of God by Sir Robert Shirley, whose singular praise it was to have done the best things in the worst of times. Now that's the job description of a Christian pastor, to do the best things in the worst of times. Be urgent in season and out. That's what Paul is saying. Are these the worst of times? Well, not in all ways. Not if you're a woman. In many ways, these are the best of times if you're a woman in the West. There are opportunities open to you that have never been open before. Uh, They're not the worst of times if you're a racial minority in the West. But below the surface of our opportunity, there are some very troubling signs in the West. And in some ways, these are the worst of times. At least, these are the worst of times for several centuries. It doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're coming from. It seems everyone is concerned about the growing coarseness in society, especially in Western media, uh, the popularization of sex and violence. It's the worst of times if you're a child in the United States, in the UK, uh, at least in terms of growing up in an intact family. More than 40% of our children will not be raised with both their mother and their fathers during their childhood. If you, like me, believe that children are healthiest when they grow up with a mother and a father, this is the worst of times. It's the worst of times if we look at the media. It's the worst of times if you care about marriage. Divorce rates have risen to historic highs and then they've plateaued, but they're much higher than they were two decades ago, four decades ago. It's the worst of times if you think that abortion is a moral crime. Uh, It's the worst of times if you care about truth and corruption uh, by any measurement that a sociologist could employ. There is corruption in almost every one of our institutions. Uh, There is a man named Jimmy Saville? Saville? And Rupert Murdoch, have you heard of him? And Barclays Bank? And Wall Street? And uh, sometimes doing the best in the worst of times is not just the worst of times culturally, the worst of times uh, uh, sociologically. Sometimes doing the best in the worst of times. Sometimes it's doing the best in the worst of our personal times. Doing the best in the worst of our church times. Paul says, be urgent in season and out of season. And that is to preach when there's a bumper crop, when there's an abundant harvest, and to preach when the ground is hard and cold and there is absolutely no harvest and no fruit on the vine. Any pastor who wants to be in ministry long-term is going to go through seasons of up and down and during those down seasons to stay at the task. And when it's personally hard, Any pastor who has been in ministry has gone through very hard periods in their own family's lives. And you say, what should I do then? The Apostle Paul says, preach the word. Don't preach your current experience. And don't turn church into a gigantic therapy group for yourself. 
So many churches have become codependent with their pastors where, you know, the church begins to minister to the pastor. Now, we can reverse that. John Wimber told me years ago, you know, you're there for the people. Uh, he had asked me several times to travel with him to teach and to do conferencing. And I just said no, no. And finally he called me up, and I think it was 1991. He called me up and he said, Rich, may I ask you a question? I said, sure. He says, is there something wrong with you? <laughs> so I said, I'm sorry? He said, is there something wrong with you? He said, you know, I have people clamoring to travel with me. I've asked you three times, you've turned me down. What is the matter with you? And so I said, well, John, you know, to be really honest, uh, going to conferences, it always feels like cotton candy. What? Candy floss? Floss. And you do it with candy? That's why Americans have so much better teeth than you do. But I said, you know, building the local churches always seem to be more substantial. And, and these conferences, I don't know, you know, they just are, feel a little frothy. And, and John, you know, over the phone, he said, you know, it may feel that way to you. But it doesn't feel that way to the people who are coming. I'm not asking you for you. I'm asking you for the people. Uh, and I just thought, you know, all that we do when, when we're pastors, it's, it's not for ourselves because, oh, you know, we need this. We do it for the people. And so even during the worst of times for yourself, preach the word. And then Paul says, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. You know, a visionary leader knows people. What do we look for in a Christian leader? You look for someone who not only knows the scripture, you look for someone who knows people. And there are different kinds of people, Paul said, who, needs to be, who need to be led. Some people need to be encouraged. Some people need to be rebuked. Some people need to be corrected. All of it done with great patience. Christian leaders are people who do two things really well. They need to love people, and at the same time, they need to love God's Word. And leaders who do both are worth following. Some Christian leaders love God's people, but they don't love God's Word. And so their ministry is one of accommodation to people's demands and to people's changing lifestyles. And you see this all the time. I love people. I don't really love and I don't have an anchor in the Word of God. And so the accommodation comes out with, well, you know, I, I just simply can't expect people today to be abstinent until marriage. It's unrealistic to talk about abstinence from the pulpit. People today cannot stay in a bad marriage. It's unrealistic to talk about keeping your covenant. People in the UK could not possibly be expected to move to a Muslim country that's hostile to Christian faith and lay their lives on the lines. There are lots of leaders, lots of small group leaders, lots of Christian counselors, lots of Christian pastors who love people, but they don't love the Word of God. 
And there are other leaders who love God's word, but they don't love people. And so they don't fall into the error of accommodationism. They fall into the error of irrelevant orthodoxy. And so much bad preaching happens because folks who are listening to us do not believe that we understand their worlds really. It has a far-off quality to it. Folks listen and they say, you know, this person doesn't get me at all. Maybe she spent a lot of time in her study. Maybe she can tell me the exact tense of the verb. Maybe she, she can tell me all of the history. But she doesn't understand what it's like to be in an office where I have to listen to dirty jokes all day long. Maybe they love God's Word, but they don't understand what it's like to be in a classroom and, and, and have your faith made fun of by the teachers and by the other students. Or what it feels like to be in a really bad marriage. Or what it feels like to have a rebellious child. Or to struggle with same-sex attraction. Or to be unemployed. Or to be clinically depressed. Or to be racked with doubts about whether God even exists at all. The person doesn't seem to get it. Bad preaching communicates to people that the preacher doesn't live in the world that the listeners live in. The preacher never seems to struggle with temptation. And their 14-year-old, they're not arguing with their 14-year-old daughters about what's appropriate to wear. They don't ever seem to fight with their husbands or wives. Their kids are always, you know, obedient. I tell the church, one of the church's favorite stories about me is, I tell the church the time when, my daughter and, and my wife, you know, fought a lot when my daughter was a teenager. And one day, uh, my daughter and wife were fighting, and the dog got real excited and began peeing all over the floor. <laughs> and so, you know, I was already just fit to be tied listening to them screaming, and then the dog is peeing. <laughs> and so I put the leash on the dog, and I'm pulling the dog out of the house and he's peeing on my shoes as he's, you know, he's so excited and he's a big dog and he's got a lot of pee and, and, and he's so excited and I'm so mad and he wraps my legs up in the, uh, in the leash all the while peeing all over me and I'm out on the front lawn and I just have a meltdown and I kick the dog. That would be bad enough. But my neighbor <laughs> was leaning on her front door looking out. And there is Pastor Rich who's been sharing the gospel with me about how the gospel will transform you. And he's screaming at a dog and kicking him. So I went over to her. I was, I was so humiliated when I looked up. So I went over to her after and I, you know, I, it was, I think a day or two later, I knocked on the door and, and uh, I said, look, I'm so embarrassed. Um, you saw me kicking my dog the other day. And I don't normally do that. And, and she absolutely denied seeing it. I mean, I could not tell her, you know, she just denied it. She just said, no, I didn't see anything. 
Pastor, do you live in the world that I live in? You know, my world is full of mystery. Uh, in, in my world, parents do abuse their kids. Sexually, physically, emotionally. Pastor, in my world, parents do abandon their kids. Uh, I live in a world where 21-year-olds can be killed. Uh, I did, I used to practice law. I, I did an adoption uh, for a, a little baby, for a couple in our church. I, I went to the hospital picked up this little baby, gave it to the parents, watched the child grow up in our church. Last year, the child that I gave to the parents was blown up by an IED in Afghanistan, and I did his funeral. And so I followed the whole arc of this person's life from birth in the nursery in the hospital to doing his funeral. Pastors, do you live in that world? The same broken world that I live in. And uh, pastors know people. They love people. And uh, a visionary leader, of course, evangelizes. Let me just quickly wrap this up. I've gone a bit long. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Of course, part of the work that we have as an evangelist, an evangelist is an equipping function, apostle, prophet, uh, evangelist, pastor, teacher, the fivefold, fourfold ministry, so to speak. Uh, but evangelism is not just that the pastor models evangelism. I'll talk about that in one second. But the pastor equips the church and stirs the church in the seven P's of evangelism, right? And so we believe in and we train people in proclamation evangelism and personal evangelism, and prophetic evangelism, and power evangelism, and programmatic evangelism, and presence evangelism, and prayer evangelism. Uh, we multiply opportunities for evangelism. A few years ago, I was invited to do a uh, conference for the National Council of Churches. Uh, these leaders from the National Council of Churches came to my church and they said, would you come and speak, do, do some plenary sessions at these, these uh, meetings? And I said, why are you talking to me? I'm an evangelical. This is part of the World Council of Churches. I don't, I'm not part of your movement. And they said, well, your church is growing and we thought it would be good if you came and you can encourage us because some of our churches aren't growing. And I said, well, you know, I don't have any magic regarding how churches grow. If I come, I'll speak to you about evangelism. And a uh, woman who was leading this, this movement said, it's funny that you should mention the E word. <laughs> you know how, do you use the expression the F word here? Yeah. I will not say it. I know that that doesn't culturally translate. It would not in the United States either. Uh, but she said, it's funny you mentioned the E word. We were talking about our discomfort with that the other day. So I said, well, I'm going to talk about evangelism if I come. So I talked about evangelism. And at one point, there were several hundred pastors in the room. I said, I just thought to myself, I said, pastors, let me ask you, you know, within your own traditions, 
Um, how many of you have communicated the gospel in such a fashion that people knew you were looking for an immediate response right then and there? Uh, whether you call it renewing your baptismal vows or making personal, you know, uh, commitment to, to Christ, or however you communicate it. How many of you have communicated the gospel in such a way that people knew you were looking for a response right there and then, some indication Several hundred pastors in a room. How many raised their hands? I asked, in the last year, 10. I said, well, this is your problem. This is your problem. And so I won't do the same thing here, but I would just simply say, pastors, preachers, are you regularly inviting people right there and then to give their lives to Christ? Right there and then. Regularly pulling the trigger. And modeling that whether you think there's any non-Christians in the room or not, people will start bringing folks if they know that you're inviting. Last thing. Last thing. You know, a visionary leader finishes well. And I'm going to close with this. The Apostle Paul says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. You know, visionary leaders finish well. And uh, Marlene and I did a conference in uh, the UK several years ago. I think it was a new wine conference. And then we flew over to Ireland for a visit uh, there. We had never been to Southern Ireland. And we did this nice long drive throughout the south of Ireland. We came to a place called Cove in County Cork. And it was there that uh, the Titanic uh, picked up passengers, uh, the, their last passengers, for their voyage across the ocean. And they have an exhibit there. Maybe some of you have seen it on the Titanic. But they also had there an exhibit on the Lusitania. And uh, many of you know the story of the Lusitania. Do you know it? Uh, World War I, 1915. It was the largest ocean liner in the world, uh, built by the English. Uh, it was sailing from New York across the Atlantic, uh, carrying uh, several thousand passengers, uh, and it was torpedoed by the Germans, by a German U-boat. It was 11 miles off the coast of Ireland. It was about to turn in. It was actually turning in to, um, to shore and when it was torpedoed. And... Uh, 1,200 people lost their lives. And they actually had video footage of the Lusitania in one of its prior voyages, a sailing. And I stood there and I watched it and I thought to myself, this is a picture of many people's lives. They, they sail all the way across the ocean. They're completing the journey. They're turning into port. And then they blow up their lives. And I thought, how tragic... You know, it is incumbent upon us, you have not been a leader until you finish the task. Until you come all the way home. And uh, so many leaders 
today are blowing up their lives. There is nothing more painful than to walk with a leader who has destroyed themselves. There's nothing more painful. I've been through it, unfortunately, several times in the last five years with my own staff and one who was a dear, dear friend. Uh, So let me just close with this. And I'm just going to have you stand and pray for you. I won't do ministry today because of the time. But would you do one exercise uh, at some point in your devotions over the next week or two? Write down in a journal what will happen to you if you have an affair. Just what would you lose? What would happen if you were unfaithful? Run through it. Say, well, you know, first of all, let me just put it at the top of the page. This cannot end well. <laughs> just put it at the top of the page. This cannot end well. It won't end well for you. It never has ended well for anyone. All the illusions, all the sugar-coated poison that the enemy hands us, you know, it will not end well. And just list it. You know, I will hurt my spouse who I promise to love. And if I have children, I will deeply wound my children. And I will lose my ministry, certainly. And I will probably, you know, blow up uh, the church or at least damage the church. I will disappoint friends. I will cause other pastors or other uh, folks in the church to fall. Their marriages will collapse because they'll say, if she couldn't do it, if he couldn't do it, I can't do it. I will hurt the Lord, bring scandal to the gospel. I will have people gossiping about me. And I will forever be marked, no matter what I've accomplished, I'll forever be marked as somebody who didn't finish well. Leader's job description. We recognize that we stand before God in judgment all the time. We preach the word. We do the best things in the worst of times. We do the work of an evangelist. And we're called to finish well. Why don't we? The people said.